0: The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. There are some people
1: that make their work just another thing they have to do. And there are those that make their work something that they want to do. Welcome to Working On Purpose with your host, Elise Cortez. In our program, we provide guidance and inspiration from those people who have found deeper meaning and personal connection to their work life. It's beyond 9 to 5. It's Working On Purpose. Now, here is your host, Elise Cortez.
2: Welcome back to the Working on Purpose show. Thanks for tuning in again this week. I'm your host, Elise Cortez, joining you from Dallas, Texas, which is home base for me. This program is all about helping people more meaningfully and productively connect with their work and equipping organizations to do the same for their employees. It was originally inspired by the meaning and work research I've been doing over the last 15 years and now complements the work that I do at Insignium, a global management consulting firm. I'll get to the program in just a moment, but first a big thank you to my media partner and sponsor, JobMing.com. They are the leading locally focused job board in the nation and are dedicated to helping employers find quality talent in their own backyard while giving job seekers control over their search so they can find work close to home. Thank you, JobMing.com. Last week, we were on the air with John Sumser, who is the principal analyst of HR Examiner, and we were talking about what's happening in the field of human resources and how technology is being used to power the field, including engaging with prospective candidates, managing the recruitment into companies, onboarding them, and then supporting their ongoing learning and development throughout their careers at their employers'. For this week's conversation, with me is Bob Binkowski, who is the co-founder and managing director of DesignPlex Biomedical, which designs and manufactures medical devices, medical-grade instruments, software, and network interfaces to remotely visualize information in real time. He's also the CEO of B-Squared Medical Device Solutions. We'll be talking about how his career evolved from space to medicine, the work he and his team does at DesignPlex Biomedical, including implantable blood pumps and artificial hearts, and his perspective on the future advancements in the fields of medicine and space. We are especially happy to have him because he's on vacation, and he's joining us today from Wellington, New Zealand. Bob, it's great to have you with us. Welcome to Working on Purpose.
3: Okay, thank you, Elisa. It's nice to join you.
2: Yeah, I'm especially delighted that you are joining us from so far away, literally more than halfway across the world. So thank you for doing that. It's wonderful. Normally, you are here in the, the, the Dallas-Fort Worth area with me, so the fact that we're making this happen is is fantastic, thanks to technology. <laughs> right. So, to, to get us started here, I, I want to get as much out of you as I possibly can in the hour time that we have, and so... I was so intrigued when we first began to speak about you and your life and your background. So if you could just kick us off by telling us how you began your career working in aerospace. And you said you were working on the B-1 bomber before before you got into the life sciences field. So can you kind of sketch for us your early career?
3: Okay. I've always loved aerospace, uh, airplanes, the space program. I started working at North American Rockwell on the B-1 bomber briefly before moving to McDonnell Douglas in Long Beach, California, where I worked on the C-17. And I worked there for a few years, and then an opening became available to work in Houston on the space station. So I transferred to uh, McDonnell Douglas in Houston and worked on site at Johnson Space Center at the beginning of the space station program. And uh, that was really... uh, a great uh, career path for me and, and actually quite lucky to get the opportunity to work on site at Johnson Space Center. So I moved from aer- airplanes to aerospace and really enjoy uh, working on the space program.
2: Well, first you have to, you got to help us understand why were you so fascinated with space?
3: I, I don't know. I think ever since I was little, I, I loved flying model airplanes. I love building model rockets, uh, I don't know, there's something about space and the unknown, and, you know, when you, at night, when you look up and you see the stars, you know, I can just imagine, you know, the world's out there and, you know, what, you know, what is out there. So, I don't know, there's some, there's some fascination about uh, flying in space for me. Mm.
2: Well, you know, what I find so endlessly fascinating about that for me is that I'm a, been a, I've am been in a meeting and work researcher for at least 15 years, as I mentioned in my intro, and everybody looks at the world differently, right? So your lens of what you focus on, what captivates you, is different than what captivates me. And I, I never tire of hearing the stories of how people get into what they do, why did it matter to them. Um, lots of people look up into the sky at night and they're not not remotely curious as to what's out there. It's just pretty.
3: Yeah, I think, uh, for me, I loved getting off the ground. I was able to uh, fly an airplane before I was able to drive, and uh, for me, there was always just such a fascination of what was above us.
2: Hmm. Well, I already can tell. I love the way your mind works, and I'm glad that we get to share this with our listeners, Bob. So um, this is really awesome. And I'll tell my listeners that I originally met Bob at a – it was a life sciences summit here in the Fort Worth area, and I accidentally ran into him when when there was a break, and that's how I met him. And then when I got his business card and looked to see what he did, I thought, oh, my gosh, I want to learn more about this man. And then getting you on the phone, Bob, and hearing about your background and what you've done in your life is just – Definitely something I wanted to share with the listeners. So, this is, this is neat. And, and that brings me to the next place. Um, you said in that call, which is kind of what happens for a lot of us, is that you accidentally got into technology while you were working at Johnson & Johnson. Um, and that they were needing you to, I think you said, volunteer to do some maybe computer modeling or something. Will you tell us that story? Th- those accidental things that change our lives and our careers can be pretty interesting.
3: Yes, I was working at the Johnson Space Center in Houston, Texas, okay, and the okay. Space Station Project Office.
4: Mm-hmm. And
3: they were looking for a volunteer to help do the computer-aided design modeling of the implantable ventricular assist device that uh, Dr. DeBakey had proposed to Johnson Space Center. Before I I started working at Johnson Space Center, Dr. Trubakey and his team from Baylor College of Medicine had come down and formed a collaboration through a memorandum of understanding to use the technology from Johnson Space Center to help develop an implantable blood pump. And -hmm. it was just lucky that I was there in the Space Station Project office and when they were looking for a volunteer to help do the computer modeling. And I wasn't contracted to do that so I did it on, you know, evenings and weekends and was able to make some computer models and eventually help make some prototypes and that's how my transition from space into medicine started it was just, you know, through some volunteer activity when they were looking for somebody to help with computer modeling which was my specialty.
2: Okay, so that you had a specialty in that, I see. So it wasn't, Lo, you were just kind of curious as to what was happening there. You, you had grounded knowledge that they could actually use and needed and happened to be at literally the right place at the right time.
3: Yes, exactly. It was just really serendipity that I was there, and the person I uh, worked with at the space station uh, project office and all that, he... He knew of my skill set, and he knew that they were looking for somebody to help, and he's the one that made the connection for me. So it was just really a stroke of luck.
2: Mm. Well, I want to recognize that stroke of luck, as you call it, because you could have also said, you know, I already have a full-time job, thank you very much, and I'm busy, and go find somebody else. But you worked on it at nights and on the weekends, and I think that's pretty extraordinary.
3: Yeah, and it, it was aligned with what I love to do. I love designing things and building things, and... I was good at using the computer to, you know, help. That was in the early days of computer design. Uh, you know, now you can do it on a laptop. But in those days, you needed quite a bit of computer horsepower. And NASA had the budget, you know, like most aerospace groups, had the budget to afford the computers that were needed.
2: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, What so, am I... Uh, oh, go ahead, Bob. Go ahead.
3: I was going to say, one, one of my fortune cookies that I keep with me at all times, it says, opportunity knocks on your door every day. Answer it.
2: Oh, I love that. Do you mind, Charlie, if I steal that and I just go ahead and record it and put it in my computer for me? That is awesome. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, you you've already kind of queued this up for us but I one of the things I really really was looking forward to speaking with you about on the show today is this wonderful ability of yours to connect what seem like two very distinct fields that being medicine and space um, and and you have a perspective about how they overlap can you share it with us
3: Yes so much of different fields overlap not only space and medicine but there's also an overlap uh, between the oil field industry and medicine. Uh, in the early days, there was quite a collaboration between NASA and the and Johnson Space Center with different aspects of medical technology, including robotics. The blood pump we were working on. Now people realize there's overlaps in other areas too. And in Houston, every year they host a pumps and pipe conference to look at what kind of collaborations there are between the uh, petrochemical industry. the medical field and that's really important too because when you look at fluid flow you know whether it's in your arteries or your veins or oil pipes or fuel that's inside of the space uh, shuttle you know many of the same technologies to analyze the fluid flow and to improve the pumps and, and uh, the different way the fluid's handled, there's a lot of overlap between the different fields. So if you find the overlap between the different fields, then there's a lot of expertise that you can leverage that's outside of your field, but specifically in the area that you're looking at, especially related to fluid flow.
2: Mm. See, I just think that is endlessly fascinating. And and again, one of the things I, I like about your, the way your mind works and the way the way that the, your experience has afforded you a, a particular Perspective, is that that just is not at all obvious to me. I just I don't think about things like that. In fact, I just made a note of what you just said because it's something I want to share with my with my social media folks as well. Just finding the what'd you say? Finding the connections or the overlap? Finding the overlap between fields.
3: Finding the overlap, right? So one great overlap is is computational fluid dynamics where they analyze fluid flow that has overlap between several fields, like I just mentioned. When I started, it was computer-aided design, using the computer to design and analyze. And that has a lot of overlap between aerospace and uh, NASA, medicine, also the automobile industry, the way they uh, use a lot of computer modeling for automobiles. So if you can define the, the specific areas of overlap, then there's a whole world of experts and knowledge that you may be able to tap into. Of course, you always have to know where the overlap stops. So, for example, when we were designing the first blood pump, we were using a group of NASA engineers uh, at Ames Research Center, and they wanted some tolerances much tighter than would be applicable to blood. So, for example, they wanted really tight tolerances, and we said, well, blood's not exactly like a liquid rocket fuel, and we need to make the tolerances a little bit looser and the gap a little bit looser so we don't damage the red blood cells. So it's really important to know where the overlaps are and then know where the overlaps kind of end so you can take the knowledge and apply it to your field uh, appropriately.
2: How do you know when the where the overlap ends?
3: Uh, sometimes uh, you take their knowledge and their advice and you build a prototype and then you find out mm, it doesn't work like we thought it was going to. Then you have to look at it a little bit deeper and then decide, okay, it's different when you're pumping a, a rocket fuel versus you're pumping blood, and so uh, sometimes it's just by experimentation that you find out how, where the overlap really ends, and then you learn a little bit more subtleties about specifically what you're doing, and you know you take the knowledge that they, the information they give you, not with a grain of salt. It's incredibly valuable, but you have to know where you have to apply the specifics of your field to it.
2: You know, what strikes me when you talk about that from my vantage point, Bob, is I work in the in the, wor- the world of, of performance breakthroughs, human performance breakthroughs, and certainly organizational transition transformation. And what occurs to me as you say that is that as the, the, the various parties that are involved interact, there has got to be newly created space that you each encounter that you e- neither of you knew before. Yes?
3: Yes, that's exactly correct. And sometimes the entire fields, uh, be, become open up because of that interaction. And specifically, you know, when you're looking at pumping uh, rocket fuel versus pumping blood and you find out, okay, now we're damaging blood, then people start to look at, well, why is the red blood cells getting damaged and how are the red blood cells getting damaged and, and is it is it, you know, is it purely mechanical damage to the blood cells or are there chemical interactions or shear stresses at inducing uh, different types of uh, pathways for damage. So uh, entire fields, and I'm sure dozens and dozens of PhDs spin out of the work when you start looking at things a little closer.
2: Mm. Oh, that is just fascinating and just really, really interesting to me. I'm I'm really glad to have this conversation with you, Bob. I was looking forward to it. Um, in some ways, I think I should have been more of a hard science than a people scientist, but that's okay. There's still room left in life, right? I'm only fifty-one. <laughs>
0: <laughs>
2: um, so, another thing that you said, and it kind of gets to what you said before, already right, that I, I really wanted to investigate, and we might just start it before we, we have to go on break here, but you said to me that many people don't really know that NASA had, had spent a full third of their budget on human physiology investigation and advances, so they could understand how people fare in space, and that, of course, makes sense, right? It makes complete sense, but when you put it in that kind of frame, a third of the budget, it's huge. Tell us more about that. What do right. you know about that? Yeah,
3: that, that's what I was told when I was uh, starting to work on the blood pumps because I had the same question. I'm like, why, why isn't NASA even involved in developing blood pumps? And that's when it was relayed to me that, you know, a third of the budget is really on, on uh, you know, physiology. And, you know, like you said, it does make sense. They, they did so many analysis on the astronauts in, in two areas. One, how, how does space affect... The body, you know, how, you know, does it affect the bodies? Uh, Everyone's heard about the bone uh, density. You know, why do people lose their bone density in space? How How can they get it back? You know, we don't want to permanently damage astronauts when they return from space, especially as the missions start to get longer and longer. And then number two is how can the body perform in space? You know, everyone's seen the spacesuits and the gloves, and they're a little bit bulky. You know, what kind of strength do you have in space? What kind of dexterity do you have in space? So NASA's done a huge amount of work in, in looking at how space affects the body and how the body can perform in space. And, you know, it's critical. I love the I, I love some of the uh, tools that I've seen when they look at the range of motion. You know, the astronauts can only carry so much payload and only have so much dexterity and time in space, so they have to be as efficient as possible. Uh, and that's why there's now, a, you know, the development of the robonaut, uh, you know, the upper torso of an astronaut that's actually a robot to try to, you know, have a little bit more work done outside the vehicle, uh, EVA as they call it, so, the human body doesn 't have to be subject uh, you know to the space and wearing a spacesuit, so uh, a friend of mine down at Johnson Space Center was doing a lot of work to look at why astronauts lose their ability to focus when they return from space and so there there 's a tremendous amount that can be learned about the body and the body 's interaction with its environment, and the space the weightlessness of space is a great you know, test bed to look at how the how the body evolves and, and adapts and reacts.
2: Uh, That is incredibly interesting. I want to hear more about that, Bob, but hold your thought for just a second. We'll go on our first break. I'm Elise Cortez, your host. We've been on the air with Bob Binkowski, who is the CEO of B-Squared Medical Device Solutions and the co-founder and managing director of DesignPlex Biomedical, which designs and manufactures medical devices, medical-grade instruments, software, and network interfaces to remotely visualize information in real time. He joins us today from Wellington, New Zealand where he's away doing some vacationing. We've been talking a bit about how his early career got him from space into medicine. After the break, we'll talk more about what he was saying there about NASA and also learn more about what his company actually does. Stay with us.
0: fridays at 2 p.m pacific time 5 p.m eastern time on
4: the voice america variety channel live up to your full potential you've heard that for years but now there's a channel to help you get there introducing the voice america empowerment channel get motivated hear about success stories and positive encouragement The Voice America Empowerment Channel is the home of the world's top life coaches, entrepreneurs, and success experts. Listen to the Voice America Empowerment Channel. It's your world. Motivate, change, succeed.
0: Success starts here. VoiceAmericaEmpowerment.com.
4: It's your world.
2: Thanks for staying with us, and welcome back to Working on Purpose. If you're just joining us, my guest is Bob Benkowski, who is the CEO of B-Squared Medical Device Solutions and the co-founder and managing director of DesignPlex Biomedical, which designs and manufactures medical devices, medical-grade instruments, software, and network interfaces to remotely visualize information in real time. Collectively, Bob and his team have developed more than 50 patents in the United States and internationally in assisted. The clients in commercializing their medical devices in the U.S., Europe, and China. I'm your host, Elise Cortez. Let's pick up where we left off there, if we can. Bob, you were you were tantalizing us with some information that you were sharing about how astronauts come back from space and have a hard time focusing. Say more about that.
3: Right. Uh, a friend of mine, he's a medical doctor, worked at Johnson Space Center, and he relayed to me that he noticed that when the astronauts were returning from space, they would like to land the shuttle themselves. And of course, uh, having the bodies you know, fully instrumented, they were able to track their eye movement and noticed that they spent an unusual amount of time looking at the instrument cluster. And then realized it was because that they were losing their ability to focus quickly after being in weightlessness for so much time. And so he was tasked with developing a simulation on Earth that could disorientate people and try to recreate the ability of people to focus quickly. So, and it sounds a little bit you know, okay, that's kind of interesting. But when you realize it's not just the ability to focus, it's also the, the ability to balance and, and what is causing the human body to lose that ability. And then when you think of all the elderly people that lose their ability to balance, you think, okay, there's a huge patient population that could pen- potentially benefit from this type of research. So many things that NASA found kind of maybe mundane or slightly interesting, but if you can draw the connection to the huge patient population that ultimately can use the benefit of this research, you know, then then you can understand why NASA is is funded and part of their mission is to take what they learn from space and apply it to the general population.
2: Oh, that is just so compelling to me, Bob. And I really appreciate you sharing that perspective. And I, I hope what this does for our listeners, you you know, we're talking the very first show of, of 2017. And I hope this is really inspiring to listeners to consider, wow, what could what could I do if I just look for patterns? If I look for overlaps between fields? What could I do? What could I contribute? I just I hope that's what's happening in a few of the minds that are hearing the sound of your voice today.
3: Uh, right. I hope so because once you once you understand those overlaps, or how something that you're working on, you know, you you can think about how can this help the general people, and you know, maybe it's a little bit of a stretch, and maybe it takes a little bit of a time, but so much of the research that we do and the work that we do nowadays ultimately can help, even if if it's you know in medicine, maybe it's not in medicine, maybe it's in other areas of technology. Um, you know, I'll have to put pl- put a plug in for a NASA tech briefs. You know, they list all the patents that they have and all the technology, and you know, some of it, of course, is in medicine. Some of it is in you know they've developed some new types of paint that are make your house more efficient. There's so many different uh, spinoffs of NASA that can help the you know the greater population. So if you're looking for ideas and, and want to be inspired. You know, look at some of the technology that's has out of NASA that's waiting for somebody to pick it up and run with it and, and, you know, use it to develop a product or, or you know, integrate it into an existing product.
2: Mm. Well, along those lines, and I don't know if this is how it went for you, Bob, I, I would love to have you share how you began your own... You have two companies that you're working with right now, and I'd love to have you share really how it is that you started them.
3: Yeah, so... I was working in a biologic company. And, of course, there's a lot of overlap between medical devices and biologics, especially in terms of uh, process engineering and facility layout. And we were able to sell that company. And then, you know, that gave me the ability to say, okay, now what do I want to do with the, uh, the rest of my career? And decided I really, I really like medical devices. I like things that move, uh, electromechanical devices. So I started doing some consulting in, in medical devices ventricular assist devices, and artificial hearts. And then more and more people had requested that we start building prototypes and doing more development. So my business partner, I convinced him to leave his job at Siemens, joined me. And then we started flex Biomedical. And our specialty is really electromechanical devices. And we noticed there's a huge gap between the great technology that comes out of academic institutions or NASA and how that technology can be commercialized. Many times people have good ideas, or they may even have a good prototype, and they're stuck. You know, they, they don't know how to make it so it could get approved by FDA or approved by the European Union through CMARC. And so we specialize in helping people take their ideas or their prototypes and bring it to a commercially viable product with uh, FDA approval.
2: Well, the way you say that sounds like there's not a whole lot involved, and I gotta believe there is a whole lot involved. So, have you cultivated this ability to get this, you know, to go through this approval process? Has it taken you a fairly long time? Have you just found a sweet spot, or how have you gone about that?
3: Oh, we've been working on this for more than twenty years, and okay. there is a lot involved, <laughs> and uh, a lot of people don't. Understand the subtleties. So, for example, even even when you're making uh, prototypes, you have to look at the human factors and the risks associated with it. You know, people don't consider if this is going to if it's going to be a, a pediatric patient or an elder elderly patient. Do they have the dexterity? Do they have the finger strength to be able to use it? Uh, do they have the eyesight to be able to uh, look at the Uh, if you have a display on it, are they able to read the display? Uh, You know, are they colorblind and maybe can't tell the colors? Or if you have beeps or bells or buzzers, you know, are they the right frequency where elderly people can hear them? So there's a tremendous amount of uh, subtleties in order to make a device that will work with the patient uh, population that you intend. And when I mentioned the elderly and the pediatric. Of course, that brings me back to what I was talking about earlier with the the ergonomics, or not the ergonomics, the dexterity that they look at uh, at NASA for the, for the astronauts. Do they have the finger strength? Do they have the range of motion in their arms or their fingers? And there's some great books published by NASA on human physiology and range of motion. And, you know, a lot of people don't even know those books exist, but, you know, they'll tell you what the average strength is of, uh, of a man's hand. And then you can, you know, extrapolate that to a woman's hand or, you know, sometimes, you know, in our cases, we've taken many elderly people and we actually measured the strength of their fingers. Are they strong enough to, con- you know, attach the connectors, push the buttons? And, uh, you know, that that's another area where the you have to know where the overlap uh, stops between uh, the different uh, groups. For example, in the aerospace program, they have what we call Milspec connectors, which are very tight and lock on. And then what we realize is many, many patients don't have that finger strength in order to unlock those connectors. So then you have to come up with the same type of reliability and safety, but that elderly people can can manipulate.
2: Mm-hmm. So many things to consider. And I, I'm certainly becoming more and more present to the idea that There would be. There's obviously no way possible not to not to not to develop and create these kind of devices without a lot of experimentation in among the very people that you hope will be served. There's just no way, right? To be and even then, even when you do the experiments, to be able to imagine any new scenarios that could present themselves that you didn't already encounter.
3: Exactly, and you have to consider that. And it's the same whether it's in the the. Airline industry or the medical device industry. Everything is developed, manufactured, designed based on risk. What if something goes wrong? You have to look at all the scenarios where, if something goes wrong, how do I make it safe for the people that are using it? Whether it's a, you know, passenger on an airplane or somebody with an implantable, implantable medical device, you have to consider. You know, am I using the right materials? How long is the life of the device? Do I need? some levels of redundancy, so in case one system fails, uh, another system can take over. So, you know, many of these high-risk industries uh, are all based on risk evaluation and risk mitigation, and, and in that case, there's many overlaps between numerous fields where you have to look at how do I make it safe for anybody who's with the device or near the device and that includes everything from mechanical safety to electromagnetic interference. You have to make sure if there's patients around that have a pacemaker or ICD that, you know, your your device isn't putting out any kind of electromagnetic interference that could, you know, trigger those types of devices. So it, it really comes down to designing with a, a, a risk-based mentality where your ultimate goal is to make the device safe and make it effective.
2: Mm. so uh, alluring the way you talk about this kind of stuff and 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 i do want to hear especially i know that you've been working on implantable blood blood pumps and artificial hearts and when i think about mitigating risk i certainly think about how that how that is crucial in those two areas um will you tell us more about the work that you're doing on these things it's really hard for me to imagine an artificial heart to start off with it's really just so hard for me to get my head around that
3: Yes, so, you know, in all of mankind's existence, everybody realized the heart was kind of the center of life, and for that to be removed from a body, you know, psychologically, that's a huge leap, and technology-wise, that's a huge leap as well. You know, our bodies have had, you know, millions of years of evolution to fine-tune the heart and make sure it's reliable, has the appropriate, you know, not redundancy, but certainly the appropriate... Uh, ability to overcome certain situations like high blood pressure, things like that. So making an artificial heart is an incredibly challenging uh, field because of the interface between what's mechanical and the tissue and then also just making sure that it has the longevity to last as long as the the patient will be alive. So it's, it's still an incredibly challenging field. And it's uh, interesting, Time Magazine, you know, had uh, a cover many years ago, The Artificial Heart is Here, and maybe that was a little bit ahead of its time. You know, there's still work on The Artificial Heart. You know, there is an improved artificial heart, and there's newer technologies available now, basically continuous flow technologies, which has changed the implantable blood pump field dramatically, and now implantable blood pumps assisting the native heart, that's that's a well-accepted field. There's still a tremendous amount of work to be done to reduce the adverse events. Stroke, uh, bleeding, mechanical reliability. So uh, implantable blood pumps to assist the heart, that, like I said, well-adopted, but there's still work to, to reduce the adverse events. A permanent artificial heart, there's even more challenges there uh, because there is no native heart in case your mechanical device fails. Uh, you know, the patient ultimately will 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 die if their artificial heart fails. So the whole level of risk and risk mitigation is much much more crucial for an artificial heart than, than an implantable assist device.
2: And so, just to make sure I understand, Bob, currently is there anybody out there who is existing on an artificial heart?
3: Oh yes, there. There's many many people now alive, walking around with artificial hearts in them, and they're wow. they're the pneumatic type. And, uh, you know, they they carry a little air compressor with them that uses pneumatics to move the artificial heart. And they're doing well. And uh, some of them, uh, you know, are waiting for a heart transplant. You know, nowadays, because of, you know, the need for for heart transplants and the lack of donors for a heart plant transplant, many people have no other option. They have to have an implantable blood pump or an in the case of they have complete heart failure they they need an implantable artificial heart in order to survive long enough to be able to get a transplanted heart so there there are people walking around nowadays with an artificial heart and some have been on you know more than a year but ultimately we want an artificial heart that will last as long or longer than a heart transplant and with the same or fewer adverse events and that's the real challenge you know making a an artificial heart that will last 10 plus years with uh, a low stroke rate mechanical failure rate uh, really the same thing a person would expect if they got a heart transplant
2: it just occurs to me to ask you bob how how is an artificial heart related to or di- and different from a pacemaker
3: uh, so a pacemaker is an electrical device that sends an electrical signal to your, your heart and causes it to beat at a certain rate. And all of the pumping action is done by your heart muscle squeezing with that electrical impulse. a, a implantable blood pump or an artificial heart is completely different. Uh, an implantable blood pump, a left ventricular assist device, or an artificial heart, those are active pumps where you have a spinning component or a beating component, so it pumps the blood through its own through its own pumping action and doesn't rely on the native heart to squeeze. So pacemakers are nice if your heart muscle still has the strength to pump the blood, but maybe the timing isn't right. Maybe you've had some some infarcts or some damage in the signal uh you know, Don't cause the heart to beat correctly, but the muscle is still mostly viable. Then you can use a pacemaker. If, you've, if your heart failure has progressed beyond that and your, your heart muscles just no longer have the ability to squeeze hard enough to pump the blood out, then you need an auxiliary pump. And maybe it's something that's pneumatic that fills and squeezes the blood out, or it could be a pump that spins, like a continuous flow pump. Uh, people are also working on additional pumps that are on the outside of the heart that actually squeeze and squeeze the entire heart to help the muscles uh, squeeze and pump the blood out.
2: Mm. You have an exquisite ability to describe something that I think must be extremely complex in a way that even I can understand. So thank you for that, Bob. It's (laughs) impressive. It's time for a short break again. I'm Elise Cortez, your host. We've been on the air with Bob Benkowski, who is the CEO of B Squared Medical Device Solutions and the co-founder and managing director of DesignPlex Biomedical, which designs and manufactures medical devices, medical-grade instruments, software, and network interfaces to remotely visualize information in real time. He joins us today from Wellington, New Zealand. After the break, we'll talk a little bit more about some of his perspectives on how he sees the advancements in medicine and space. Stay with us.
0: Live up to your fullest potential. This is the Voice America Empowerment Channel.
1: To learn more or to invite Elise to speak to your organization, please visit her at www.elisecortez.com. She would welcome the opportunity to help get your employees working on purpose. The Voice America Live Events page is here now to showcase your corporate, individual, or organization's live event. Visit voiceamerica.com forward slash live events at voiceamerica.com.
4: Live up to your full potential. You've heard that for years, but now there's a channel to help you get there. Introducing the Voice America Empowerment Channel. Get motivated. Hear about success stories and positive encouragement. The Voice America Empowerment Channel is the home of the world's top life coaches, entrepreneurs, and success experts. Listen to the Voice America Empowerment Channel. It's your world. Motivate, change, succeed.
0: Success starts here. VoiceAmericaEmpowerment.com. It's your world.
1: This is Working on Purpose with Elise Cortez. To reach our program today, please call in to 1-888-346-9141. Again, that's 1-888-346-9141. You may also send an email to Elise, A-L-I-S-E, at EliseCortez.com. Now, back to Working on Purpose.
2: Thanks for staying with us and welcome back to Working on Purpose. If you're just tuning in, my guest is Bob Vinkowski, who is the CEO of B-Squared Medical Device Solutions and the co-founder and managing director of DesignPlex Biomedical, which designs and manufactures medical devices, medical-grade instruments, software, and network interfaces to remotely visualize information in real time. Collectively, Bob and his team have developed more than 50 patents in the United States and internationally assisted on their clients in commercializing their medical devices in the United States, Europe, and China. I'm your host, Elise Cortez. Before the break, we were talking quite a bit about your perspective, your very fine-tuned perspective, Bob, on Um, implantable blood pumps, artificial hearts, some of the work that your company is doing. Um, Before we get on to some of your thoughts about advancements, I'd love for you just to comment a bit. It's rather remarkable to hear that you've got 50 patents between you and your partner and your team. Can you describe maybe a couple of them that you're particularly proud of?
3: So, one of the patents that uh, we're particularly proud of is one that was based on physiologic algorithms. and There's actually several patents related to that. And what makes that so interesting is it was developed with an implantable blood pump and flow meter and it and it's used to diagnose what's going on with the patient's physiology are are they dehydrated? are they uh, losing their uh, pulse pressure? are they uh, having some other kind of condition? like ventricular tachycardia or some other kind of physiologic condition. So in the past, I I didn't think this wasn't, let's say, my favorite pad. But over the last couple of years, I realized that, you know, the way the body is instrumented from a medical standpoint is so, so small compared to the way we instrument other technology. So, for example, in your car, there's probably hundreds of instruments telling you how it's running. How is the tire pressure? You know, is is the gas tank full or empty? And our human body has so little instrumentation to tell us how well it's working. Sometimes you you know yourself. I'm hungry. I'm not hungry. I'm tired. I'm not tired. But I, I think one of the biggest advancements in medicine is going to be more diagnostic uh, technology applied to our body. And people are doing that now. People wear Fitbits. They keep track of, you know, how how far they're walking, what their heart rate is. I think that's going to expand more and more. And, you know, there's many large companies down in this field. Google has, you know, huge investment into, you know, how to diagnose, uh, you know, your body, everything from, um, you know, Contact lenses that can tell you what your blood sugar is to uh, you know forks and knives that can measure uh, you know older people uh, you know how how they're shaking and how their medicine interacts with their with their body. I think there's going to be huge advancements with uh, the ability to diagnose what's going on with our body and so the physiologic algorithm is is really one of the most uh, interesting. Uh, pieces of work that we've done, one of the most interesting patents. Uh, we recently submitted a patent application for the ability to detect if you are if you have an emboli in your bloodstream, and this could be for deep vein thrombosis, you know, for people that are, are at risk for that, or for uh, an arterial emboli to give them just a little bit of a warning before they might get a stroke. So I think there's going to be a huge, uh, like, let's say, explosion in the medical field with being able to diagnose the body. And I think the cell phone, the smartphone, is gonna be one of the most important tools uh, because everybody carries it with them and it has a camera on it. It's connected to the web. So I think there's Mm. gonna be a huge advancement in that field.
2: Mm Mm-hmm. I can see this. I can start to see it. i I just recently got an Apple watch, Bob, and I love it. I love the fact that it reminds me to get up and move and I can use it on my runs and it's it's now taken. I don't need my garment anymore. It's just <laughs> i'm I feel like a little kid in a candy shop with it <laughs> uh,
4: exactly. so.
2: Um, along those lines, I, I would love to hear you say. You know, now we, were, we were, you're kind of greasing the skids about the the advancement piece I wanted to talk about in in medicine and space. And so, one of the things I'd love for you to talk with us about is your perspective on how artificial intelligence and robotics will inform how medicine is performed.
3: So, I I think robotics is going to be a huge field in terms of medicine, and I think it's going to be more than you know a lot of people think of you know, robotic, robotic surgery, and and it has a couple of great indications for that. And, you know, today's robots are really, you know, end effectors of a doctor sitting, you know, behind the screen and manipulating the robot. You know, 20, 30 years from now, the robot will be making decisions on its own. And the advantage of that is you can program the robot with the collective knowledge of thousands of surgeons, not just the skilled one, that's manipulating it nowadays, so the, the robots can be much smarter than a single surgeon. It can evaluate the different options quickly. and as every patient's different, every surgery is different, the robot can give you probabilities. Here he, he, if we do this, this type of surgery or make this type of um, you know, interaction, we, we can have this result. So I think the fact that robots can have the collective knowledge of thousands of clinicians. Will be huge. It, it will improve clinical outcomes, and it will uh, ultimately save a lot of people. So I think robotics has a has a, a huge opportunity. So those are the big robotics robots that do surgery. There's also smaller robots, and I don't know if you want to call them robots or diagnostic type of tools, but you know there's many uh, I, there's many devices now where is something is making a decision, whether it's to inject insulin in you or a medication uh, to help your, um, let's say, epilepsy or types of neurologic uh, or muscular disorders. So there's many, many smaller devices now that have a a brain behind them, and it does something, Uh, you know, the ones that can measure what's going on on your skin, the in one of the groups we work with, they have the ability to put circuit boards on your skin. So it looks like a tattoo, but it's really an electronic circuit. And it can, you know, take a little sip of your sweat and find out what's going on inside your body. So uh, I think, you know, the 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 combination of robots and diagnostic uh, devices on your body, like you said, your Apple Watch or you know, the Google Watch, I, I think the, uh, the head of uh, Google Life Sciences, that it could measure 17 different parameters about your body. All of that is going to lead to better medicine and patients uh, having the knowledge to take better care of their body. Of course, Mm. one of the biggest challenges is how do you get people to change their behavior? You know, everybody knows smoking is bad for you, but people still do it. So, one of the biggest challenges in medicine will be a behavioral change. If you know something is has a bad effect on your body, how do you help people stop uh, doing that and doing something a little bit healthier?
2: Mm, maybe that's where I can help, right? With my with my field, I'm not sure about that, but in terms of psychology, identity, sociology, you, you
3: and I talked about, yeah. Exactly. You and I talked about that before. That's going to be one of the most challenging and rewarding aspects of all this new medicine. How to get people to want to change their behavior in order to lead a healthier life. Mm
2: Oh, this is just so exciting! Now, you've already kind of started this. One of the questions I wanted to ask you as well was really thinking about how medicine is going to be changed, how how it's practiced differently. You've already kind of giving us a taste of that here, and and I love the idea of going down the road into the future with you, Bob, on this stuff. But is there? Are, can you can you help us understand if it, if there's different tools that maybe are coming about today that aren't being used that you foresee or think are already starting to being to be used that will help us along?
3: Yeah, I, I think one of the most interesting tools that's going to be, you know, a, a cornerstone of future medicine will be your smartphone. You know, for example, yeah, if yeah, you have yeah. uh, spots on your skin, you know, I can imagine an app, and maybe there's one already, where you take pictures of it and it can start recording, you know, is your spot a changing shape and is it potentially a, uh, a melanoma on your skin?
0: Yeah.
3: Uh, so, And the fact is your smartphone is collected to the web, so all of this data can be uh, sent to the cloud and analyzed and searched for trends. That's one of the biggest uh, fields is how to look for trends. Whether it's you as an individual, you're trending maybe your heart rate, your weight gain, your metabolism. You know, you can trend that yourself, you know, with your Fitbit or or, or with your smartwatch. Uh, But also as a population, you can also trend a population and find out. Everybody says, well, what's your normal blood pressure and 120 over 80? But, you know, what's your normal blood pressure at different stages of heart failure? Or with different kinds of medical conditions, so the fact is that you can collect information from thousands of patients and look for it. You can find out what what your normal is and what what can be expected for you know the group, the specific subgroup of of a you know patient population that you're in. So I think all the uh, analytics going into trending individuals and trending groups of people is going to lead to a lot of better better medicine and better therapies, whether it's drugs or devices.
2: I would so love to comment on that, but I want to make sure that I I would queue up another question before we go because we're almost out of time already, Bob. So I'll chat with you more offline about that. But I want to hear about your perspective now on the space industry. Where do you think that's going?
3: So uh, the space industry, of course, I... You know it's one of my passions i I love that, and I love to see the technology that comes out of it, you know both from the mechanical side and the mechanisms and also the the medicine that comes out of it uh, you know the space industries all always struggled uh with funding over you know different kind of administrations and i I think a lot of that people don't realize the long term benefits of it you know. Whether it's you know different types of medical devices or like I mentioned you know different kinds of paints, I think there's so many benefits uh, of the space program because the space program forces you to push the envelope of technology and understanding, and many times you can't tell what the immediate immediate benefits are. Uh, and then, if you can't tell what the immediate benefits are, sometimes it's difficult to get funding for it. But I think that's a little bit short-sightedness. I think there's so much we can learn about ourselves, our environment, our planet, and ultimately, you know, can can we live on another planet or can we live in space? I think the the rewards are substantial, even though they're hard to quantify at this moment.
2: Oh, this is just so tantalizing. So we could, we'll have to do another show all together just on space. Okay, Bob? And <laughs> We've got about two minutes left on the show. So maybe in just one minute or so, I'd like to give you the last word If you'll be, before I close. Um, what's, what, what would you like to leave our listeners with today in like a minute or less?
3: I think the most important thing is to uh, be inspired. You know, find your passion and most importantly, get involved. Do something. Build something, join a group. If you build something, post it on YouTube. Other people will look at it, comment, and they give you additional ideas. You know, there's a whole world out there of interesting things and how people, especially in today's, you know, social-based world, there's a way everybody can make an impact in the world.
2: Wow, that is a fantastic way to finish. And as I say, you know, you are the first show of 2017, Bob. So I do hope that people are sitting there looking at their New Year's resolutions and thinking, what do I want to do differently? What do I want to do differently in my life to be able to have different results, make a difference and really make my life count. So really appreciate so much having you come on the show and sharing your vast um, knowledge, experience, expertise, and certainly passion, Bob. Thank you so much.
3: Great. Thank you for having me. It was
2: really enjoyable. Good. I'm glad. I love the conversation. If you want to learn more about Bob Binkowski or DesignPlex Biomedical or any of his other ventures, you can start by going to designplexbio.com. Again, that's designplexbio.com. Incredibly fascinating conversation for me and the listeners, I think, especially about how you talked about the overlaps between space and medicine. Inspiring, I hope, for all of us to enrich our lives with these two fields. Next week, we will be on the air with Todd Lemens, who is a motivational speaker and author of Lose Your Ego, Gain the World. We'll be talking about his work to help companies eliminate negativity in the workplace and situating a mindset that removes our tendency to underestimate ourselves and others. So see you next week. Remember, the work is one third of our life, so let's work on purpose.
1: We hope you've enjoyed this week's program. Be sure to tune in to Working on Purpose, featuring your host, Elise Cortez, every Wednesday at 6 p.m. Eastern Time, 3 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. This week, find your life's purpose at
0: work. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Empowerment Channel.